Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hockman. My goal on this podcast is to give you quality medical information to help you gain a better understanding of common pediatric concerns. And I'm excited to say today is episode 79. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Shelley Barr about eating disorders. To tell you a bit about Dr. Barr, she is a Stanford-trained internist, and she has subspecialty degrees in adolescent medicine and eating disorders. Eating disorders are unfortunately very pervasive in today's society, and as parents, our actions and words really influence our children. So Dr. Barr gives great advice on how to talk about topics like dessert, weight, and body image around our children. She also explains concerning signs to look out for and available treatment options should our children start to show signs of disordered eating. Dr. Barr is a great resource to know about, and I thank her greatly for coming on Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, a quick reminder, if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review and sharing a favorite episode with a friend. All of this really makes a difference to help the podcast grow. Now on to the podcast. Hi, Shelly Barr. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Hi, Jessica. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. I think that the work you do is so important, and I'm so excited to spread awareness and education about eating disorders. Can you tell everybody, what do you do? (laughs) Well, um, so I guess I should start with, uh, I'm an internal medicine, adolescent medicine doctor um, who specializes in medical complications of eating disorders. And, um, you know, I first started doing this uh, when I was doing my residency in internal medicine, actually. Um, I was lucky enough to have um, one of the really well-known adolescent medicine doctors working at Kaiser. And he sort of took me under his wing um, and introduced me to the field and to the, you know, pluses of the field, minuses to the field, and um, got me to see a lot of young adults and um then working at you know kaiser in san francisco just taking care of lots of young adults in general and then that got me um thinking i wanted to do a subspecialty in this and um went to stanford did my fellowship where they have both an inpatient and outpatient eating disorder unit um so that's how i got into it and what i do so i remember as a teenager it felt like everybody knew somebody who's had an eating disorder and it seemed like it was a very, it seemed very common when, you know, the 90s. Is it still as common now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, definitely during COVID, there was a very, very large rise in eating disorders, both female and male. So it used to be um, that you'd probably see a male with an eating disorder for, you know, one in every 10 females. And now it's much more frequent. I have a lot more males in my practice than ever before. Um, I would say just for like general statistics, uh, about 10% of the population um, has at some point an eating disorder. So that's probably about, what, 30 million Americans (laughs) Um, with an eating disorder at some point of their lives. Uh, Again, COVID really led to a very sharp um, peak in eating disorders. A lot of teens and adults were, you know, taken out of their normal college life, school life, um, were sent home, were stuck at home. And a lot of the behaviors that um, were, you know, 
not seen as much when when students were going to school every day was suddenly really on the rise, both with respect to depression, anxiety on the rise, and that led to need to control things, and that was nutrition or suddenly becoming healthy. Um, so we did see a very large peak um, spike of eating disorders during COVID. That's interesting to me because I would think that greatest pressures to start having an eating disorder might be social pressure. So coming from going to school, being around your peers. So it's interesting to me that actually being home and not around your peers, we would see such a spike. Yeah, because, you know, that although they might not have been together physically, they were together a lot on social media, which brought out all kinds of different fads out there, TikTok. Um, sure. so, there, so there was a lot of comparison being done online. Okay, so that's that's quite a staggering statistic that 10% of all Americans have experienced an eating disorder at some point in their life. What are the statistics in terms of recovering? Do most do most of us do most that experience an eating disorder? Because recovery looks different for different people. Um, and so I, I don't think there's an accurate number out there for sort of how many Americans recover and things like that. Uh, but, you know, it is definitely, if there's one thing I can say about eating disorder world is that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so um, recovery comes in different stages and looks different at different times. Okay. That, that makes sense. So for parents that are listening, many may have kids that are about to become teenagers, or maybe they're starting to be more aware of their body and their image. Do you have any advice for parents on how we can talk to our children? What, what kind of language should we use? What, what advice do you have for us? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I often hear in clinic or see is um, a lot of use of calories um, at the dinner table, um, using exercise as a form of compensation. So, oh, I ate a you know large meal last night. I'm going to go running for an hour today. Um, you know, that kind of language for our young adults is really, really difficult because their brain is very black and white. It's extremely concrete. So when they hear that, they hear this is bad, that is good, you know, like, and, and we don't really want that for their brain. We want them to have uh, everything in moderation. Nothing is really bad for you. Everything can be good for you when you eat it in the right amount. So having a couple of scoops of ice cream, which is, you know, a protein has calcium is not bad for you. Having a gallon every night, you know, is a different story. So really trying to have them understand that they're growing, that they're fueling, right? That they're like a car that you have to pump gas in. And if you don't pump the gas in, the car stops, right? So they're really about maximal growth. Their metabolic rate is at a really high place. Really want to make sure that we're using words like energy and fuel and not words like calories and um, compensation and restriction and, and things like that around our, our young adults, whether it's dinner table or around the house. No, I agree. This makes a lot of sense to me. With, with my kids, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but what I do is I never talk about food uh, in terms of how it might make their body look. I talk really about making their body feel good, be healthy. But I never talk about food in terms of how it might make their body appear. Exactly. We want to talk about their bodies in general as something that is strong, right? As, some, as something that has strength to it, whether it's mental strength or physical strength. 
Um, and that's really the message. What about scales? I'm so, you know, I know that knowing a child's weight is important to some extent in turn, like if I'm dosing a medication, it's helpful to know their weight. Um, sometimes that number does come up. Do you have any advice for parents in terms of weighing their children? Sh- should we be weighing them? Should we not be weighing them? No, I mean, I completely agree with weighing them at a doctor's visit. I don't think they need to know that weight. I don't think it needs to be made a focus of the visit. I definitely don't think parents should be weighing their kids at home. I don't think kids should be seeing their parents weigh themselves at home. Um, that, that, again, because their brain is so concrete and so black and white, they don't see the gray, right? So... Um, it's really important not to have them fixated on numbers, fixated on that scale. It can get really dangerous very, very quickly because of how their brain works. So if they, let's say, get on and I'm just throwing a number and they see 110 and they're like, oh, we need to get to 105. And then that 105 becomes 100 and it becomes really fixated. And so um, I, I encourage pediatricians not to, you know, focus on weight in the clinic and also parents. But but absolutely, I do think, you know, you, it needs to be done in the clinic and a growth curve is so helpful. I mean, it's really helpful to me in my in my work, right? Seeing if a, if a patient has fallen, if, if a kid has fallen off his growth curve or his height curve, right? That tells us a lot. That tells us a lot about where they are nutritionally. So I do think it's important to 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 get it and to document it, but not to become the focus of the visit. It's such a good reminder because I, I know that a lot of adults, we will weigh ourselves frequently, maybe out of habit. We like to see where we are. And I do think you're right that our children are very observant. They see what we do. They model after us. It makes sense. And if they see us weighing ourselves frequently, then it only makes sense that they would want to do the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, they don't understand that that number is something that fluctuates, right? Weight is something that changes daily. It changes um, whether you've had more water. It changes for a woman before they menstruate. It changes um, with whether they've had a bowel movement or not. So they don't understand all those little things that make weight change like adults do. Even adults don't, right? Even we have a hard time remembering, oh, wait, I did I have a bowel movement? Did I not? Is my weight because of that? Is Am I getting my period? Did I drink a gallon of water before getting on the scale? I mean, we, we, you know, so that's really hard for us to understand, let alone for a child. Is there any other advice that parents should be aware of in terms of how we model for our children? So we talked about not weighing too frequently. We talked about the words that we use. Anything else that you can think of? I think modeling good nutrition is really important. So modeling, you know, at the dinner table that, you know, you're eating from all the food groups on the table, that you're not just making food for them. Um, And again, it's like you said, our kids model what we do because we're their parents, right? We're We're their whole life. And so really when parents start to restrict, it does give the the kids a signal that this food isn't good for them. I hear from a lot of parents. I'm just curious what, how you would respond to this. A lot of parents, I hear the story around Halloween where they find candy wrappers hidden under their kids' pillows or hidden in their rooms, and they don't want to chastise their children, but they also feel like, you know, candy's not the healthiest and children should be open about the foods that they're eating. I mean, I I just find it interesting that so many kids know from an early age that candy is not accepted and they hide it from their parents. 
Right. Well, I think it's right how we, um, the, the diet culture is sort of out there as parents, right? We're like, you can have dessert after you eat your meal. You can have this after you do this, as opposed to more of the intuitive eating that's out there, which is, okay, you feel like having your candy first, fine, and then have your, you know, really normalizing all of food as opposed to putting it in these categories. So, you know, those kids who are who are hiding it or, or eating it on the side where their parents can't see, they're just feeling really guilty and ashamed. And we don't want that for those kids. We don't want them growing up with that feeling of shame around food because later on it, it creates um, problems like binging and purging and, and things of that sort. What so, would you say to the child? I would ask them why, you know, symbol of like, why did, you know, why did you feel that you needed to have that in your room? Like we can eat, we can enjoy this all together and really have a piece of candy with them and show them. Right. So we can have a piece of candy, two pieces of candy. We don't want to eat the whole bag. Again, I think it's about teaching kids about moderation and teaching them that there is no bad food out there, that everything we eat it can give us the energy we need, but we need to eat it in the right amount. And it's true. Nobody's going to be, you're not going to get into trouble by having a little bit of candy or some, uh, you know, moderate portion. It really, I think it really becomes an issue when it's the excess. Uh, absolutely. And the excess comes usually from a, from a place of feeling shame and guilt around it and needing to hide. Yes. Yes, right. Yes. When you keep telling the brain that it can't have something, the brain wants that something. Right. So it's going to it's going to find a way to do it and it can do it either in in hiding and, and secret secretive, which then leads to all kinds of behaviors. Or we can just be open about it and, and try to have it as a family. Right. So like we in my family, we do like ice cream challenges during the week. My kids, you know, we do like Oreo ice cream bar challenge and I buy all kinds of different Oreo ice cream bars and we try to make things be fun. So it's not just about the eating, but it's the experience of eating it and how it makes us feel and how it how it makes us laugh at the dinner table. That's so interesting because when you say an ice cream challenge, that means you're actually encouraging it, which is the exact opposite of what we've all been taught to do. But I can see why you're doing it. You're normalizing it. Right. I'm, I'm also creating fun around it and not making it this, this like, ooh, you know, big deal that we're, having, that we're all having ice cream. It's like any other thing that we're deciding to eat that night. Right. It's fun and it's a treat, but it's not this forbidden fruit. If parents start to notice signs where they are concerned that their child may be going down the path of an eating disorder, what's the first step they should take? Yeah, so I guess some of the signs first is, you know, if their child starts to count calories, if their child is looking at labels all the time, if their child um, used to always eat a food and now they've stopped eating it, if they're starting to cut out food groups, actual food groups. Um, one of the things that's very common is sudden vegetarianism or sudden veganism or things like that. Those are suspicious um, behaviors. If there's excessive exercise, exercise um, in the bedroom alone, doing you know different kinds of ab exercises are very common. Um, you know, I really, I really, really believe in building an, an open and honest relationship with your teen. But also, you know, part of that is looking through what they're browsing and what they're looking at, because 
you know, we do have to keep them safe. And there's a lot of information out there that is dangerous and that is inaccurate and they don't know to tell the difference. Um, right. TikTok now has all this weight loss screaming at our young teens. Um, and, and that's scary. So what parents should do first and foremost, I think is first go to their pediatrician. I think they have relationships with their pediatricians. They have honest built, you know, honesty built into that relationship. The pediatrician knows their child um, really well, because most of the time pediatricians are from, you know, birth or, or toddlerhood. Um, and then have them screen for an eating disorder. And if things come up, then definitely send to a specialist like me. <laughs> if a parent does notice these behaviors and they talk to their pediatrician, that sounds great. But what about the language that parents should use with their own children? Should they confront them? Should they talk about potential harms from having an eating disorder? How should parents talk to their children? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it depends on, on the parent and the relationship of the parent child. But I definitely think that if there's a concern, parents should bring it up. Hey, we've noticed that you're exercising a lot in your room. What's what's going on? Are you trying to change something? Is Did someone tell you to do that? You know, sometimes these kids hear from health teachers at school, um, from PE, from coaches, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat that, right? It, our, our kids are exposed to so many different people throughout the day and week that it can come from anywhere. So I do think they should have an open conversation and ask like, oh, why aren't you eating chicken anymore at dinner? What's going on? You used to love this chicken dish, you know, um, things like that and try to see what's where the behavior is coming from. I think that's smart. Just bring it out into the open. Absolutely. So just so parents are aware, if their children do have a fixation about eating and eating less, what are the potential harms that can happen to the body? Is it more psychological that you notice? Is it more physiologic or both? Well, it's definitely both. You know, when the brain is starved, um, and we see this on MRI studies, it is definitely more sad, it's more anxious, it's more on edge. So, you know, parents might see actually more outbursts. Oh, my kid never talked back and now they're talking back or more isolation or more sadness, crying, things that they've never noticed before. Um, because the, when the brain is starved, it, it reacts that way. Um, now we call that now we call that hangry, right? Yeah. Um, but with our teens, that's often also just sadness, real sadness um, and and isolation. Um, the other thing is there is a lot of physiological um, negative effects on the body, starting with sort of when the body goes into hibernation and drops its heart rate in order to maintain blood flow throughout the body. Um, so like a bear in the winter, it'll drop its heart rate. Um, and that can lead to irregular heart rates. I mean, um, eating disorders are the second leading cause of death from psychiatric illness after opioid use. So wow. it's, it's up there. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Um, there's a lot of medical complications. Like I said, the heart rate um, first. There's a loss of menstrual cycles. So if a parent suddenly notices that, you know, no pads are being used or no tampons are being used or the trash is clean for several months, that can really be dangerous um, for bone health, right? Because estrogen leads to um, 
bone stimulation. So if they're not getting a period, it means their estrogen is low. It means they're not building bone. And this is the time we have to build bone. So there's, there's a, a bunch of medical complications that can occur from the eating disorder. I'm sure this varies from child to child, but how long would you say most patients that you meet are under your care? Um, I mean, that really varies on the medical complications. So if someone has, you know, bradycardia, low heart rate, um, or electrolyte abnormalities, um, or both, you know, one, the other, or both, then I'll see them more frequently. Um, If someone is doing well um, medically than less frequently. But again, you know, this is a marathon and not a sprint. So um, it, it takes time um, to, to get to a place where they are really on their own. Do you like what you do? I love what I do. I feel honestly blessed every day that I get to focus on this and that I get to do this. Um, I feel thankful that I had amazing mentorship uh, throughout my fellowship, that I got to work um, somewhere that had such good medical training. Um, And I'm excited about going to work every day, which feels amazing to me. And I think what's so tricky is there truly is an obesity epidemic going on with children. So on one hand, we want to protect them from overdoing it, but... It is very true. I mean, 10% is a very staggering, is, that's a very impressive statistic. Right. And, you know, yes, um, you know, there is an obesity epidemic out there. And, you know, I'm sure you saw the recent posting by the American Pediatrics, um, which is horrifying to me, but um, because of what I do. But I think, again, to prevent that is not to create another disorder, right? To prevent that is to teach normalization of meals and physical activity and being outside and, you know, the strengths of our body and not um, sort of cut this, do that, and, and that will be health because I think we're creating another disorder. Can you say out loud what the AAP recommended, what the recent recommendations were for anyone listening that doesn't know? Sure. Um, so they recently came out with a recommendation to uh, provide weight loss medication um, for children um, of a certain weight and, you know, decrease that weight uh, criteria. And I think that's just really upsetting to a lot of the providers in in definitely my field, uh, nutritionists, uh, therapists, all all the clinicians that that deal with eating disorders. Because again, um, we're cre- we're creating another problem. We're creating a devastating problem actually um, by teaching these kids that this is how we're dealing with it. I wonder how that's going to go over because I, I can't see a lot of parents wanting to put their children on medication, but maybe we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that. Considering the amount of weight loss medications currently provided for adults um, mm. without supervision, without, you know, because I'm also an internist, so I also see adults with eating disorders, and I can tell you that um it, 
the weight loss world is not being managed uh, appropriately right now in many places. Tell everybody listening where I think it's so important to spread awareness about where you are, what you do. Can you tell everybody where your clinics are and how they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So I have two clinics right now. One is um, in LA. It's across the street from Century City Mall, which is really central and easy to get to. And then I have another clinic um, in Orange County, Newport, to support uh, the population out there. Um, easiest way to reach me is, I guess, by email, uh, shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, at mpedc.com, midpeninsulatingdisorderclinic.com. Um, and, Yeah. I guess that's the easiest way to find me. And out of curiosity, I'm sure most of what you do is in person, but do you ever offer anything online for people that are maybe not living in Los Angeles? Oh, absolutely. Um, so actually zoom consults are probably half of my practice right now. Um, with the help of a clear step scale, which is a numberless HIPAA approved scale and a blood pressure cuff. Um, we can do consults by zoom. Um, I have clients who live in places with no support like Fresno. And so that's how we, um, how we meet by zoom. And then I, I work with their pediatricians to get blood tests and things like that. That's amazing. And out of curiosity, do you take insurance? I don't take insurance. Um, I am out of network and uh, fee for service, but I provide super bills with medical um, codes. So most of my clients get really good reimbursement. I would say that you're worth it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. Also, if you could take a moment and leave a five-star review wherever it is you listen to podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. It really makes a difference to help this podcast grow. You can also follow me on Instagram at AskDrJessica. See you next Monday.